This is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Dealing with disinformation tops the agenda for all kinds of organizations working on all kinds of issues. People are bombarded by fake news, foreign propaganda, consumer scams, and other kinds of deliberate disinformation that make it hard to sort out fact from fiction. Alex Cole has been on the front lines of information wars around the world. He says America is under a disinformation assault from within and outside our borders, and the urgency to counter this threat cannot be overstated. Fortunately for us, he has practical solutions. Alex is Vice President of External Affairs at Internews. It's an international nonprofit that believes everyone deserves trustworthy news and information. They have 30 offices worldwide and support independent media in 100 countries, reaching millions of people. At the global nonprofit IREX, he helped organizations in Ukraine and other countries fight back against the onslaught of disinformation from the Putin regime in Russia. On this episode of Achieve Great Things, we'll talk about real solutions, practical steps your organization can take to fight one of the most important challenges facing the field of communications and democracy itself. Alex, let's start with a story. What's an example of a disinformation challenge that was met with a real solution approach that really made a difference in your view? So let me give you two stories. I'm going to start with a historical one, Germany and the printing press, and then I'm going to fast forward to WhatsApp in Zimbabwe. So I'm going to start in Germany because I think there are disinformation has been around for a long time Mm -hmm. and we continue to not learn the lessons of how to deal with it in the modern era. So 1400s Germany printing press is invented. What's the book that's printed the most? The Bible. The Bible. Right? What's the book that's printed the second most or competing with the Bible? The dictionary? The ham- A Hammer of Witches. It was about witchcraft and how women should be executed. Whoa, okay. Right? And when it comes out, right, terrible piece of disinformation. It, it, it marshals in two centuries of killing women, drowning them, burning them burning them at the stake. The the Vatican believed in witchcraft, but they thought this little piece of disinformation went too far and they condemned it. Hmm. So what happens after they condemn it? It starts selling like hotcakes. Like the demand for this thing picks up. Hmm. And this is how most people think of disinformation in the modern era. Somebody produces something that's inaccurate or it's hate speech. And the first thing that you need to do is to counter it and condemn it. But usually that draws more attention to something and can amplify and make the problem worse. Mm. So I'll fast forward to Zimbabwe and WhatsApp. So high of the COVID crisis, you've got disinformation swimming everywhere on WhatsApp in particular, right? End-to-end encryption, it's very hard to interfere with with missing disinformation. You can't content remove it. So how do you how do you deal with that do you do you try to condemn it no that just makes the problem worse even though i think most people think that's what i should be doing there's these myths running around about these bizarre cures for covid that are wrong we were working with a small media outlet that's actually a whatsapp based outlet right 
Zimbabwe, low resource country. They have 30,000 subscribers. It's all on WhatsApp. We did a, an experiment, which was, well, rather than countering all these crazy rumors that are running around about COVID in the community, what if you just report on or, or send packets of information each week on the, the general best practices about social distancing? And guess what? The group that gets the straight up, here's the, the good information, is 30% more likely to follow social distancing practices. The group that doesn't get anything or that gets something that's countering the myth, there's no effect, right? Mm -hmm. This is going to like the communicator 101 toolkit. You're always gonna be in, con in, in conflict with the narrative you oppose or with disinformation. And the first place to go is be more assertive with your message or be more assertive with the fact that you're trying to elevate versus going after the disinformation and saying this thing is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your, your example is reminding me of scientific experiments about this very thing. It was sort of how to do rapid response and finding that people who heard disinformation and then somebody trying to counter the disinformation were more likely to remember the disinformation in the first place, not the attempt to correct it. Exactly. Wow. And that's the lesson that I think everybody keeps not mm -hmm. learning. I mean, since 2016 in America, right, after disinformation in the election, it's like, oh, disinformation is this new problem. Good information and bad information has competed <laughs> with each other since the dawn of time. This isn't new. The toolkit for addressing it is really the tried and true practices that, that I think a lot of the, the, the world's best communicators know. This brings up uh, an article you wrote for the Chronicle of Philanthropy that pointed to the need to, quote, equip citizens to distinguish falsehoods from the truth. Is that different from what we we're just talking about here? How should people be thinking about that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll put things in three categories. So information, you've got the production side, you have the distribution side, which is, you know, what channel are you accessing it on social media, TV, and then the consumption side. How is the person on the receiving end of that information processing it in their in their head. Mm -hmm. So I was just taught we were just talking about the production side, which I which is super important, right? But the consumption side, many citizens do not have the basic skills of critical thinking in terms of telling the difference between what is true and what is false. And I, I do think that is what is different now from the era of the printing press. We have a more complicated media environment with a billion websites. It's probably up to many more than a billion websites now, right? You have mm -hmm. all of these social media. There's so many different ways to access information that you have to be a savvier consumer in this context as you, you're not just reading one pamphlet or the other. There's mm -hmm. all different kinds of ways to be tricked. So you actually have to teach people, all right, here's, you know, what you're interacting with, what you're seeing on social media, and here's how to critically assess where something is true or whether something is false. And this is something that we really don't do in the United States. There is no media literacy um, national curriculum. It's not really a national curriculum in the United States. <laughs> no. But even at the state level, it just doesn't mm. exist. Hmm. And in the countries that teach 
um, critical thinking skills, specifically media consumption, their populations are much more immune to disinformation campaigns. In Finland and in France, for instance, they have media literacy classes that are standard part of a high school curriculum. And they are, when you look, you know, almost every modern day election now suffers from disinformation. Mm -hmm. Those particular countries, it's had the least impact on voting behavior. And it's because their citizens just know how to look for the good stuff and ignore the bad stuff. So what's an example of something you learn in a media literacy class? So it's you have to go channel by channel, yeah. right? And you really have to, to engage with your audience, you know, see where they get tricked and trapped. I would say one of the, the more interesting things, and this is something that, that, you know, your listeners or anybody else could actually use if you're trying to make somebody a more savvy consumer. The question I usually get is, Okay, so you teach somebody the basic skills, cross-checking, right? You hear it in this outlet, go check it over here. This is probably the most important basic media literacy skill. Mm -hmm. But is that really going to help the person who's like deep in the conspiracy hole? Or who's just watching one news channel and they're just sitting there and just passively taking in all this information. Mm. How do you get to that person? And there is a methodology for that. I think of it like the nutrition sense. Ask people questions, what we do in our media literacy trainings. Ask people questions about their media and information consumption diet. It's like a food diet. Mm. You wouldn't only eat ice cream. You need carbs and sugar. Good and, right? You yeah. need protein. You need all these things. Interrogate whoever you're trying to train about where. what are your sources of information. And nobody wants to get fooled. Yeah. And almost always when you have this conversation when somebody's like, oh yeah, I just... I really only watched that one show. Oh, yeah, maybe I should watch some others and just have a conversation mm -hmm. with them about it. And they're going to you're going to make them feel smarter by encouraging them to diversify their media diet. The thing that people always do instead, though, when they're having the argument with their right. uncle yep. <laughs> is you idiot. You're watching just that one news channel. Turn it off. Those are the those are the idiots. Don't listen to them. You're not going to convince some somebody to, ch to change by calling them stupid or by attacking the channel itself. It's very, very mm. challenging to actually tell somebody this channel is, especially if it's one that they're consuming already, because you don't want to admit that you've made a mistake right. in tuning in the channel. You just want to encourage this person to, to diversify their diet. Yeah, I've wondered about that in thinking about the approach to this, um, pointing out mistakes and errors and you believe you were a fool to believe something or it's really puts people on the defensive rather than opens their eyes and your approach is opening their eyes and giving them a sense of agency. That's interesting. Exactly. I mean, and this is this is kind of the, the communicator's toolkit, whether you're coming at this as a journalist who's just trying to present the facts, ma'am, mm -hmm. or if you're coming at this from an advocate where, where you're actually trying to use, you know, a message to, to move somebody somewhere else. You've got to give your audience 
agency, you can't alienate your audience if you want to move them or educate them. So some of your advice for the advocacy organizations listening to this conversation is what channels are you using? What channels are your audiences using? Make sure you understand how they're consuming and how to open their eyes to the options that if they're if they're subject to disinformation. Yeah. And the other thing I would other recommendation I would have for for advocacy organizations, one, take a really critical look at what kind of disinformation is in your space. Mm-hmm. I've always seen advocacy groups who sometimes they are in a space where it's just overwhelmed by disinformation. And uh, then there's others where there might be a little tiny bit, but they're almost overreacting. Mm. Those are the ones who it's like, ignore that, focus on your message. So you need to be real, quantify how big of a disinformation problem do you really have. Right. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. For your first point. Absolutely. And then the other recommendation I would have, and this comes from working with journalists all around the world, journalists don't want to be fooled either, and they don't want to be part of the disinformation problem. They have a challenging job because they're running from issue to issue, and they're not an expert on everything, so they also don't always know when they might be inadvertently repeating a piece of disinformation or misinformation. And I think one of the best things advocacy groups can do, you know, rather than just pitching the journalist on, here's the thing I want you know, here's my great report that I want you to recover and the journalist is annoyed and <laughs> let's all move along. Talk to them about, okay, on this issue, can I meet with you to talk about the mis and disinformation in this sector? And mm-hmm. I know that you, every single day, are obsessed with word choice and making sure that it's objective. I'd love to talk to you about that language and what language would be the most objective in this space mm-hmm. and how you don't fall into traps. And I find that journalists are very receptive to that, including from advocates. You have to be careful in that conversation and be authentic and real. You can't try to push your own agenda too hard, right? Then you will alienate them. But you can really help to mitigate the disinformation in your space if you're just simply educating journalists about how to manage it. Mm-hmm. Are there examples that come to mind for you about where journalism might be or have been sort of propagating disinformation that well, is Well, I, I mean, I think the, the COVID health crisis is the A yeah. number one example, right? All of a sudden, every single journalist has to be a health reporter. And this mm. was super complicated, real-time science information mm. that everybody had to be an expert on. And if you were, and, and if you were not you know, doing it in the right way. There were like real life and death consequences, literally. So I, I, it's, it's different. Do you need to educate the health beat reporter at the New York Times? No, they probably know it, but that's one person. It's very few media outlets have hyper-specialized reporters like right. that, right? There's such a massive other world of reporters and media, um, you know, not to mention entertainment media and all the media that goes outside of the traditional news media that all also needs to be educated. So actually, when my organization, when COVID first broke, we started, we called it the Health Journalism Mentors Bench, and we basically picked like the 15 best health journalists from around the world and just did series and series of webinar after webinar. I think we, we reached thousands of journalists by the end of it, and it was simply going over the language and the science of this very complicated issue so that they could report on it more effectively, not get by misinformation or inadvertently repeat these things. And when you're talking about the globe too, right? 
um, most of the world doesn't even, doesn't read English. And science information and most technical information is yeah. all in English. So you have to do separate trainings for people who speak different languages so mm -hmm. that they can, or, or the importance of, of engaging journalists who speak those languages to make sure that every human being on the planet gets good quality information at the end of the day so so I, I i would want to expand people's horizons behind beyond just you know u.s national news outlets who probably don't need that kind of work as much but going globally if you care about public health you know there's there's billions of people who don't live in this country or don't live in the you know highly educated um western world who don't speak english but for whom vaccines are coming last so they need information first mm -hmm. and more urgently or in this country of course as many communities that aren't tuned into those national what we'd call elite media outlets absolutely what about this so i've heard educate your audience about media literacy and the options they have educate your journalists what about the social media where a lot of people are getting information what's the what's it to take there. So it's interesting. I think a lot of social media companies, to their credit, have experimented with, I'll call it real-time intervention. That's the problem with social media, right? Like Twitter, it goes away. You see the feed and then it's gone. There's no chance to rebut mm. something or yeah. even catch that person again. They need to see that something is inaccurate in real time or see the the accurate message in real time. And Google, I think, has, and, and um, YouTube has been particularly effective at this when when there is a um, you know a video that that might have some misinformation sometimes they take it down sometimes it's not appropriate for them to take it down for a host of reasons but they'll put something right next to it they'll either flag it so that in real time the consumer knows oh I should be critical about what I'm hearing in this so the platform can help tag those things in real time or they can feed up um, the alternative point of view in a you know in another video oh you heard the conspiracy theorist here's Dr. Fauci that <laughs> comes up right after right yeah so I think that's one of the most effective things on social media there when it comes to citizen engagement with it that again is you have to actually train people to understand how social media works most people don't know that there's this algorithm that is feeding stuff up based on their own habits and is trying to addict them and when you point that out to them this is what we do in our trainings they're disturbed by it because they don't want to be tricked and fooled so just raising consciousness about oh i need to be careful of this because they're trying to trick me yep. just puts people on on defense and once you've got them in that kind of skeptical mode it's kind of natural to go and fact check things and people kind of get that it's more about motivating them to do it yeah it's reminding me of the brain research about awareness um, being the first step to disrupting habits, mental habits and other kinds of habits is to bring some cognitive self-awareness, which is really is what you're talking about. A lot of the concerns and conversation about disinformation is about threats to democracy. And I know you've done some a lot of work in that around the world. And we've talked in the past about, yeah, there's a lot of Americans can learn about combating, combating disinformation around elections and politics from other places that have been contending with it for a long time. So knowing you can't be too specific in some cases, what are lessons learned um, around the world that we should be 
putting into practice here to protect our own democracy. The crucible of disinformation has been Ukraine in particular, mm. right? It's been it's been the Russian disinformation, the Kremlin disinformation testing place for for quite some time. And I think actually a lot of the um, interventions, some things I were just talking about, were really pioneered in Ukraine in response to Russian disinformation. I think some of the best media literacy courses were forged in Ukraine in the early 2010s after the invasion of Crimea mm. because there was this massive flood, there was this hybrid war- warfare, um, and we needed to rapidly train people on um, media literacy skills in particular. And so we developed these models where you could roll this out quickly. I, I think one of the innovations there, and this is a lesson for the U.S., I had, was talking about you can integrate media literacy into you know schools and colleges, and that's sort of obvious. But okay, what about the adult population? That's a whole lot of people. We can't leave them behind. And so one of the things that happened in Ukraine that that um, is often not done, we were doing trainings of trainers where it was okay. We're gonna we're gonna find the community influencers, train them on media literacy, and then go have them do a training in their community. So train the librarians and then they're going to go to their library you know patrons who are senior citizens in this community right found different influencers mm. and people care about their communities and don't want them to be fooled I mean particularly in Ukraine at that time where there was this you know sort of um, a hybrid warfare going on that was extreme motivation to, to do that so we had tens and tens of thousands of people who were participating in this so there is still an opportunity we don't we don't have we don't have to forget the adults here right. in the United States. They too can be trained on media literacy. So I, I think that's, I think that's one um, important thing. You know, the other, the other one about disinformation is just don't take your media for granted. Um, and it needs to, that is the number one most important antidote, I think, to disinformation. And um, it's dying all over the world where ha- thousands of news outlets are, are, are closing every single year mm-hmm. all around the world. And we need to support them. And we need to support them here in the United States. We now have 200 news deserts, counties that don't have newspapers at all. Um, and that trend is all, all around the world. And, you know, I there's the big picture disinformation that infects national elections. But then there's, you know, the local disinformation rumors that spread. And if you don't have a paper there to counter them or to present the accurate facts about, um, you know, the school committee or whatever's happening, that's uh, that's disinformation at the local level that's polluting democracy. And that's, that's where it all starts. So we can't forget the local either. And that's really about investing in local journalism. One, one thing I I always tell people when they're asking how can I how can I help subscribe to your local paper hmm. or give to NPR or I don't mean to preference any media outlet here but somebody particularly the local guys because they're the ones who are going out of business hmm. right and left they need support they also need the help of philanthropy as well um, all around the world the number of media outlets that survive on volunteers and philanthropy in Africa 60 percent hmm. is either philanthropy or volunteer yeah. only 40 percent can survive you know on, on ad revenue so the less from the rest of the world is it's coming, it's happening, we're losing our news media, we have to hold the line. And we have to get active 
proactive about educating our communities. That's what I'm hearing here is a need and opportunity for organizations that serve some constituency. It's a good investment to do media literacy with that constituency because that could help you forestall and address disinformation problems. Absolutely. Mm. And and I know you work with a lot of uh, community foundations, Doug. Mm. I think that if you are a community foundation or a local philanthropist, and no matter what issue it is that you're, you're trying to advance, you need a healthy information ecosystem in yeah. your community. You need good, high-quality journalists who are going to cover whatever advocacy campaign you're running or whatever, whatever quality information you're trying to educate your citizenry on. And I think that foundations should be community foundations should be adopting their local papers they're going to be going out of business mm. if they're not it's just really sad and you, know, you can try to push more ad revenue into these news outlets but fundamentally you know the big tech players have just sucked up all of the advertising and i i frankly you can do some things around the edges but i frankly don't really think there's a way out of this without philanthropy mm. Absolutely. Investing in sort of the foundation of it all, good information. Are there other areas for investment beyond media literacy and the news media itself? I think there's then, particularly on the media side, there's then just lots of different ways that you can support it. Um, so, for instance, going to the to the business side of, of things, you if you're a philanthropist, you could also help to support tech innovations that are trying to drive money back into the news media, mm. for instance. Um, we have this initiative that we just started. It's called Ads for News. And the concept is providing lists of local media outlets to advertisers on a mass scale. This is one of the reasons why all these news outlets are going out of business. They're too small for large advertisers to plow money into. The advertiser would rather just send all their money to Google, right, and instantly reach people. Well, so if you can give them a list of 10,000 URLs of local media outlets Mm. and they can just advertise in them en masse, right, and you can do this very easily, then they have a reason now to re-monetize local news. It takes philanthropy to put that whole system together. Mm. You need nonprofits who are creating these lists, right? The advertisers are not going to totally just do this out of the, the goodness of their hearts. Right. So there's those sorts of initiatives for the for the philanthropist who likes to take the business intervention approach. Yeah. There's some more interesting things that you can do there rather than just okay, I'm going to adopt my local paper. Right, that's interesting. So that's an application of long tail theory, the idea that got Amazon started, recognized that these little outlets um, that seem small when you add them up can be really huge, can reach a huge audience. Coming from the Exactly. Yeah, the creation of Amazon, where your blockbuster book back in the day would be like a quarter million. So that's where all the money and interest went to trying to get one blockbuster and not putting any money into distributing all these other little titles. But when you look at all those other little titles, they add up to a lot more audience and revenue than the blockbusters. Exactly. Same thing. That's very interesting. It makes it easy for the big advertisers. Yeah. So what developments in the disinformation space are giving you hope? What innovations, what's coming up that 
make you, you know, give you some hope about contending with it. Can I give you a, a thing that worries me? And <laughs> then I'll give there. you a hope? Okay. okay. Um, well, all right. This is, this is a hope and a fear. Uh, generative AI. I think that this is both going to be helpful for uh, dealing with the disinformation problem in that in many ways it's going to make the job of newsrooms easier. They're going to be able to do the sort of rote stories, weather stuff much faster because you can have a machine do that. And it frees them up to do higher order journalism, fact checking, investigative reporting, stories that really can get in-depth and counter disinformation and hold power to 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 account so that that's the hopeful part the scary part of generative ai as i see it this is just the next you know wave of disinformation this is not new to the world the one that worries me is particularly on the the video side if we can make if you can make videos that are so sophisticated Mm. that people can't tell them from a, 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 a real video, we've got a problem. I mean, just think of, the, of George Floyd, like what happened there. People's eyes were opened up, including people who were not particularly set, you know, inclined towards racial justice, because you couldn't watch that nine video and not say, we have a problem here. We trust video right now because it's very hard to fit. You couldn't have faked that, right? Yeah. You would have figured it out. When we enter the world where you could fake that, I worry more about people are going to just stop trusting everything and Mm -hmm. be able to say, oh, no, that didn't really happen Mm. versus the proactive side of disinformation where they're trying to trick you. Okay, sure. I'm actually more worried about people discounting the facts because they think that facts can be manufactured. Because you can't believe your eyes anymore. Yes. So, But the one hopeful thing on that, I have heard from, I'm not a technologist, but I have heard that watermarking generated videos is a real thing and that it can be done fairly effectively. So I do think that there is a an actual technical solution to that and if you were to combine that with media literacy skills so that people know oh that's what a watermark is I know that's fake oh this is how I authenticate a video I mean there will be a technological solution to that the watermarking but that alone won't do you we're also we also will have a citizen education component to make that work yeah well Alex as a Hathaway communications alum you know we like to end on the aspirational note and you've given actually there's a lot to worry about here, but you have given us some very practical insights and ideas for contending with an issue that's very much on our listeners' minds. So thank you very much. Thank you, Doug.